Well, good evening and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study as we continue and finish our study of the book of Titus. So if you'd like to turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3, we'll be dealing with this last chapter in the book of Titus. And hopefully, Lord willing, the next two weeks will be in the book of Jude, just to finish up the year before we begin the new year. So Titus chapter 3, I've entitled the message, Maintaining Good Works, Maintaining Good Works. And as we conclude this study of the book of Titus, you may have noticed um, Paul's three main emphases in this epistle. First, there's that uplifting theme of the hope of eternal life that God has promised us in Christ, which he repeats, by the way, in this chapter. It's a blessed hope, we're told in Titus 2.13, based upon the promise of a God that cannot lie. Titus 1.2, in fact, it says that. And as we'll see today, it is a blessed inheritance given to us who have been justified by his grace. The second theme is really the product of the first. Those who are in Christ and have this blessed hope should manifest God's grace in them by living blameless lives, particularly if they would be leaders in the church. And of course, he he speaks to elders here in in this particular book. The leaders, in turn, should exhort all the members of the body of Christ, both young and old, men and women, boys and girls, slaves and masters, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The third theme, which primarily applies to leaders, but it it really is a responsibility of all of us, is to avoid foolish disputes, reject false teaching, which we just prayed about, and rebuke those who spread error. Okay, so we, sh- we had to be on guard. We're not only to live a godly life, but we're to stand up against the lies of Satan, make sure that people aren't being deceived by them. So Titus, like Timothy, was charged with appointing elders who would teach these things we just mentioned. But he also was to be a living example, an imitator of Christ, who challenges, challenged the believers there in Crete to throw aside their national reputation, which is one of liars and uh, dissemblers, throw aside that national reputation reputation, and instead be God's peculiar people there in the midst of that culture, zealous for good works, as we were told in Titus 2.14. That's a key, and we'll talk about that today. So, I would exhort all of us, beloved, all of us, to seek to fulfill the role God has for us, be it you husband, wife, young man, young woman, whoever your, your position in life is, that let us all be truly Berean in spirit. And we use that term a lot, of course, taking it back to the book of Acts. We know the Bereans were people who studied the word, but we, we want to really true be, truly be students of the word. We want to know what we believe and be able to express that to others clearly. So we do want to have a Berean spirit, study the word, pursue sound doctrine, and live in accordance with that doctrine in godly integrity and love. And as we study this last chapter, let's kind of examine ourselves in the light of God's word and be careful to maintain good works, which is what Paul is teaching uh, Titus to do here, especially to uh, teach to the people in Crete. Let's maintain good works for the glory of God. That's the key point here. And for the edification of our fellow saints. We're not maintaining good works to put on a show to get the world to admire us and think how wonderful and lovely we are. No, we're to do it for the glory of God. We should be pointing people to God by our lives and our actions and our words, obviously, in the light of what he has done for us. So I think if we look carefully at this epistle, we can see that we really could easily throw out the chapter breaks and just read it as a letter and, and follow the flow 
of Paul's thoughts as he weaves these three themes I stated here at the beginning into a kind of a tapestry of truth for God's people to both appreciate and to adhere to in their lives, to rejoice in the hope of eternal life, to live a godly life in accordance with that salvation we have, and to stand up against error. Those themes are, are prevalent throughout here, and if you were to just take the book and read it from, from, from front to end, you'd get those themes, you'd see them repeated, and that's what we want to learn from it, okay? So <clears throat> we're going to look at reminders, which is essentially what Paul's doing here to Titus. I'm sure Titus, this is, he isn't necessarily a newbie. He's a, a kind of an under-apostle, he might say, or a, a, a vice-apostle. <clears throat> I'm sure Paul's been training him and left him there in Crete to do a good job understanding that he was mature enough to handle it. But these are kind of reminders. Paul's reminding him of different things. And as we go through the lesson tonight, there'll be three reminders and then a concluding reminder for us. But three reminders. First one, first reminder found in the first three verses is obedience and humility. Obedience and humility. So reminders, reminders, reminders. They can be pleasant or not so pleasant, right? Uh, we're sometimes reminded by our spouses to put the top on the toothpaste, take out the garbage, uh, or go get something at the store, or stop saying that. We're reminded of things. We're reminded of birthdays coming up, anniversaries. Oops, don't want to forget those. Uh, we're reminded all the time of things, okay? So Every time we look in the mirror, we're reminded also of how old we're getting, or how handsome, or how lovely, whatever the case may be. But you're reminded when you look in the mirror, okay? And the scripture even speaks of that in another portion. Hopefully, we're reminded each year on our birthdays, for instance, by our family, that we're loved and appreciated, okay? Hopefully, that reminder comes to us. In the Old Testament, we find God constantly <clears throat> reminding Israel of his law and of his love for them, and also his punishment if they disobey. Now, of course, even in our Lord's Supper, we have the what? The reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us that we might be reconciled to God. You might recall the um, brief reference we made to Ecclesiastes 12.1 last week, which said, tells us to remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And of course, that's true even in the days of your old age. Remember your creator. Be reminded of him. We can thank God that he's given us reminders in his word uh, of what he has done for us and what he expects of us. In fact, turn with me real quick back to 2 Peter chapter 3. And these are the kind of things that uh, Brant's kind of alluded to uh, Sunday morning here in CLA when we're doing biblical theology, is we need to look for themes, look for doctrines, look for things that remind us. And this is the words that Peter uses here. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll just look verses 1 and 2. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. So Peter is even writing here saying, I'm reminding you of these things. You know, we, we taught you these. Please be mindful of what was spoken by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord. So really talking about Old and New Testament there, right? He's covering both ends of the scale. Be reminded, and we need to look at the scripture not just as a spiritual duty to read it, but to be reminded, reminded of how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to deal with a, a situation in our life, how we're supposed to respond to a, someone who's spreading lies and uh, disinformation regarding what it means to be a Christian. So reminders, and as you go through the scripture, look for those things where there's a common word that you recognize, reminder, uh, and 
maybe focus on that and say, what am I being reminded of? And how should I use that to live my life to please God? So Paul here reminds Titus to remind the believers in Crete, these peculiar people whom Christ has redeemed, to do two things. First is for them to be subject to the rulers and to obey them. Let's read uh, verse 1 in our text. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. For every good work. <clears throat> Excuse me. What Paul is doing here in this particular portion of Scripture is very similar to what he's done in other ones, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But we should see that we need to be careful that we respect those in authority by praying for them, first of all, which we just did, but also uh, encouraging them to know who the one true God is by speaking to them the word of life, by reaching out to them with the truth, and standing for the, the gospel. Paul, uh, this is one of his repeated messages, really, throughout his epistles, why? Because as Calvin uh, points out, we are all by nature desirous of power, and the consequences is that no one willingly is subject to one another. We don't like being under other people. We don't like be under, being under authority because by our nature we're rebellious. That's the way we are. So it's, it's something that we have to fight against. We have to be willing to submit because God has said we must submit to those who are in authority. And he gives us examples throughout Scripture in doing that. So we are to set our minds on things above and look forward to the realization that our citizenship is in heaven. That's true. Yet we are to live here on earth in a way that does not bring reproach upon the word of God or the name of God. We must be good citizens and neighbors if we would impact the world for Christ. We can't withdraw into a cave. That's not going to help us be a witness for Christ. It's not going to help us as far as respecting authority. We have to be outstanding and, and faithful that people might see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul's not telling us to, uh, you know, deny the faith in order to be good citizens. That's not what he's pointing to here. But he also wants us to be an example of godly living and respect for authority, which God has ordained. Okay, again, when we think about that, we always have to step back and say, God's sovereign. He has ordained all things, including authorities, including government. And though the government obviously can be stained with sin, just like we are, we still have an obligation to obey that authority. He made that really clear in Romans chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let's turn there. It should be a familiar passage of Scripture, but let's read it just to re remind ourselves again of what, we are, what God requires of us as God's people. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, and this is important, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. We always need to keep that in mind, uh, that Whoever we have over us, they may not be the most pleasant people to be under, but God appointed them to be there, either as a means of chastising us, challenging us, or causing us to appreciate when we have good leaders. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore all their due, their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, 
honor to whom honor. That's a very familiar passage when it comes to submission to government. And we, there's another clear, Peter does the same, gives us the same perspective, same uh, admonition in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 through 17. We won't go there, but you can jot that down. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. You know, if anyone lived in the time in which he could complain about godly, ungodly uh, rulers and authority, it was Paul, right? I mean, the Caesars weren't exactly great guys. Most of them were pretty nasty. Uh, but he lived during that time. And he didn't say, well, we have to you know, disobey government because they're not godly. No, he, he made a statement that we should pray for them in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. And here in Titus chapter 3, he says, be subject to them. It may not be pleasant, but we have to be a light to the world by our actions and by our deeds that we live for the glory of God and not for ourselves, not for our own comfort. Now, the second thing that Paul exhorts Titus to remind them of is really the theme of this whole chapter, and that is to be ready for every good work, every good work. As William Hendrickson said, this phrase forms a natural bridge between duties which believers owe to their government and those which they owe to their neighbors. In other words, we're to seek to be a testimony both in our public actions as good citizens, as well as in our private deeds of love towards our neighbors. So we're not to be different. In either case, we're to show forth Christ both publicly before and in obedience to our government and graciously, obviously, as we interact with our neighbors. In fact, if you recall Paul's words in chapter 2, God's people are to be zealous for good works, not indifferent to doing them, not saying, well, they're not that important or, or coming up with one just to make yourself feel better. No, we're to be zealous for good works. Galatians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10 says this, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. So we need to pray for the grace and strength to be ready for every opportunity to do those deeds which both glorify God and are a blessing to our fellow man. Okay, that should be our goal. That's the emphasis in this chapter, to be zealous for good works, to maintain good works, not just do them occasionally to make yourself feel good, check it off saying, I did that today. No, we're to have that attitude of service to others, most importantly, serving God for his glory. Now, Paul goes on in verse 2 of our text to a more detailed instruction as to what we should and should not do as good as citizens and neighbors. Let's read verse 2 of Titus chapter 3. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Stop right there. So first, and, and frankly, this is a difficult one, isn't it? We are to speak evil of no one. Notice, it doesn't say you can speak evil of the bad guys around you or the governor you don't like or you know, someone who cuts you off on the, on the highway. You're to speak evil of no one. Well, what does that reflect? It reflects an attitude of trust in God, submission to God. In fact, Matthew Henry said this, said, we must never take pleasure in speaking ill of others, nor make the worst of anything, but the best that we can. We must not go up and down as talebearers, carrying ill-natured stories to the prejudice of our neighbor's good name and the destruction of brotherly love. In fact, in James chapter 1 and verse 26, James says this, if any man among you seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceived his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Someone claims to be very religious, claims to be you know, a really a holy person or a godly person, and yet they don't control their own tongue. They're constantly gossiping, talking, bitter words are coming out of their mouth. 
their, their religion is vain. They're not really who they think they are. Also, you might see James chapter 4 and verse 11 has similar thoughts. James has really so much to say in his letter uh, regarding the misuse of the tongue. It would be a good chapter or, or book to read. And I think uh, Pastor uh, Brantz is possibly going to be preaching on that uh, next year. But a book to read to get a sense of how we should use our tongues justly for the glory of God. We as God's people need to be especially careful that we put away evil speaking and speak the truth in love, both to fellow believers, but also to the people of the world around us. We should not be known as people who are constantly arguing and being bitter and resentful, but we should be people who are patient and are kind. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, uh, Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. We should put those things away. We should not let them be a part of our life. That's Ephesians 4.31. And that verse 1, we just read in Ephesians, would coincide with the next phrase, as we find here in verse 2 of our text, to be no brawlers, okay? To be no brawlers, or I think depending on your text, it may even say peaceable there. There's kind of the contrast between the two. We're to be no brawlers. We're not to be, um, some translations have not to be contentious or even peaceable. God's people are not to be always arguing or fighting with everyone. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25 says this, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth. So our gracious witness to people, our conversations with people, if we are people who speak peace and, and compassion rather than bitterness and anger, it will be an, a, a means by which we can point them to the truth, to point them to, to Christ. <clears throat> and then Paul just gives the opposite view of these, two, these first two phrases and obviously the more positive characteristics that a Christian should have what? Should have gentle, showing all meekness, unto all men, as it says there in our text in verse 2. We as God's people should be marked by our gentleness and our meekness, not our abrasiveness and our pride. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul beseeches us with these words, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. We are to be imitators of Christ, so let us be meek and let us be gentle like him, not abrasive. Colossians chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13 says this, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. Wow, that last phrase is really a, a kind of hits you up, upside the head. That we, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. That's tough, isn't it? It's, it's wonderful we accept the forgiveness of Christ, but how often do we kind of hesitate to forgive someone else, to, you know, mull over it, consider it, maybe even hide it in our, in our hearts until later it bursts out somewhere. We need to have that same attitude of forgiveness and compassion. It, it obviously requires much grace, beloved. I mean, let's be honest. You know, we, we need to seek the Lord so that we might be used of him to impact the world for Christ by our graciousness of our words rather than the bitterness of our words. Now, in verse 3 of our text, Paul reminds us why we should show all humility to all men. Let's read verse 3. 
For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We were like that. It's not like we're you know, perfect and we never had that type of, of a life uh, expression that you know, somehow we were always such great people in the past. No, we were all sinners. We're, all of us who are in Christ now, we were once sinners who sinned like this, who were angry, bitter, resentful. Maybe not to the degree some were, but still, it was manifest in our life. We can't say that we were perfect before we came to Christ. We need, we need, that's why we came to Christ, because we weren't perfect. We were sinners. Except for the grace of God, beloved, we would still be fools, as he says here, engaged in sinful acts and unaware of God's wrath against us. And note Paul uses the use of the word we here in verse 3. He does not exclude himself, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, like I just said. We need to recognize that and be humbled by it. Even if you're raised in a Christian home, children, and your heart was ruled, your heart was ruled by sinful, selfish desires until the Holy Spirit quickens you and brings you to repentance and faith in Christ. All of us, that's true. We were all sinners, and we all had these manifestations of sin in our life, in our conversations, until Christ did a work in us. And we should manifest that now as being different, being like him. Even today, if you're honest enough to admit it, and I, I, I am, the vestiges of that fallen nature we have makes itself manifest in selfish thoughts, words and deeds that aren't honoring to God. Fortunately, we know that as the Holy Spirit convicts us daily of our sin, that if we confess it, God is faithful and just to forgive us, as we're told in 1 John 1.9. There's always that, that means of getting forgiveness once we found we've gone astray and used our mouth to uh, even threaten or, or hurt people with our words as opposed to giving them love and compassion. So let's not think too highly of ourselves, beloved, but in, ever remember how much we owe to God's mercy and grace towards sinners such as us, that we were once darkness, but now we're light in the Lord, not because of what we did, but because of what he's done in us, and therefore we need to point people to that light, that we are now uh, in that light only because of his grace. Uh, therefore, as Paul's trying to teach here, let us walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.8, for we ourselves also were sometimes, even most of the time, foolish, Paul says. But now, what? We're light in the Lord. What a sin that I owed to the Father. Yet he gave me, he gave his son for my redemption. A hymn pops to my mind when I, every time I think about that. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. That's the truth. How, how could he love me? Why did he love me? In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the, the really socky upside of the face. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. But, praise God for that little word, but. 
In the Greek, it's interesting, in the Greek it's Allah, which is, sounds like the Muslim word for God, but it means contrary-wise, or nevertheless, or notwithstanding. Contrary to everything we deserved, God loved us with an everlasting love and purchased our redemption via the bloody sacrifice of his son. And this leads us now into our next point in our message today as we study this last chapter of Titus, and that is the reminder of God, the kindness and love of God. Paul reminds Titus here of the kindness and love of God in verses 4 through 7. Mankind lost in sin was without hope, but God in mercy intervened. There's, uh, those to me are probably two of the greatest, most marvelous words in the whole Bible, but God. I would be in hell, on my way to hell, but God intervened and, and saved me by his grace. This world would have been destroyed by a fire by now, but God has chosen to wait until the appropriate time when all his saints are gathered in. So throughout your life, if you look from a Christian's point of view, you could probably say, this would have happened to me, but God. God's intervening in all things. He's over all things. And we can praise him for that wonderful mercy. Those two words, anytime we're faced with something, we're not sure what the future is. I don't know what's going to happen, but God. But God knows. Keep those two powerful words in mind. Uh, when you're faced with a trial or something, you may not know, but God knows. And you can have comfort and that consolation in that. How much do we owe to the kindness and love of God our Savior, beloved? Can it really be measured? But God commends his love towards us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. If God had not intervened, we would all be lost for all eternity. There's an old American folk hymn that uh, I like. It It goes like this. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. To, that, <clears throat> that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. It's a wonderful old folk song. What wondrous love it was and is that desires to save sinners such as us. In fact, looking back at our text now, this is something I, I just kind of came across. I didn't really plan to put it in tonight, but I thought it was interesting. Take a good look at verses 4 through 7 and tell me what doctrine is supported in those verses. Look at verses 4 through 7. Tell me what doctrine the Bible is supported. Four through seven. It's, it's kind of obvious, but you have to kind of look at it carefully and, and see what's in there. As we've noted before in Paul's epistles, he once again declares, what does he declare? The part of each member of the Godhead, the Trinity, has in our redemption. Notice here. In fact, let me read you something from Matthew Henry, his commentary on this portion of Scripture. And you see in those verses the Trinity. Here's what Matthew Henry says. We have here the prime author of our salvation, God the Father, therefore termed here God our Savior. See that in verse 4. All things are of God who hath reconciled unto himself by Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All things belonging to the new creation and recovery of the fallen man to life and happiness, of which the apostle is there speaking, all these things are of God the Father as contriver and beginner of this work, 
There is an order in acting as in subsisting. The Father begins, the Son manages, and the Holy Spirit works and perfects all. God, namely the Father, is a Savior by Christ through the Spirit. John 3.16, he quotes, And he is the Father of Christ, and through him the Father of mercies. All spiritual blessings are by Christ from him. Ephesians 1.3 We joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.11, and with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find in these three verses the Trinity, God our Father, is referring to God the Father, and then we have the Holy Spirit, renewing of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Right there in this little passage in Titus, these three, three or four verses, we have the Trinity mentioned. And it's something we can look as we read the scriptures. These are the kind of things that we can look for or you know, have kind of stand out as we pray and look for wisdom in, in determining how our doctrines are built. Well, here we are. These words remind me of our Lord's words in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God the Father and Christ are one, as is the Holy Spirit, they're three in one. But this is eternal life. Not that you may get to heaven, not that you may have wonderful time without any more sin, but this is eternal life that you may that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know God in a, in a sense from creation. We know God in a sense from his word, but ultimately we don't know God in his fullness. And we will one day when we see him face to face. This is what it means to have eternal life. It is to know him in his fullness. So let us all value the relationship we have through Christ with our heavenly father. And may our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, till we see him face to face in glory. Looking back at our text in verse 5, Paul declares that the means of our salvation was entirely outside of ourselves, for we have nothing by which we can commend ourselves to God. And, you know, I'm kind of afraid that, uh, beloved, we sometimes forget this truth and think too highly of ourselves, especially in comparison to other more base sinners as we look around us saying, well, those guys are really bad or those women are really bad. But we would like to call them that. We cannot hide from the repeated theme of Scripture that there is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3.10, we were among those unrighteous, and yet now we are righteous in Christ. Listen to these truths which these scriptures declare. And again, they paint a clear picture of what we were outside of Christ. Job 9.20, if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Psalm 143 and verse 2. And enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight shall no man living be justified. And of course, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's us outside of the grace of God. That describes us without Christ. There's none righteous. And yet, in God's mercy, he has brought us to himself. And, of course, you'll say to me, well, yeah, I know that. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a while. Uh, we're all Christians after all. We know that Christ saved us from our sins. And I know that, beloved, but we are sometimes feeble-minded at best and do often forget the pit from which we were dug. You know, we, we want to think highly of ourselves, especially if we've been a Christian for a long time. We forget how far we've come, you know, how much God has done for us, how he has changed us and brought about a change in our life. So thus Paul is compelled here to instruct Titus to remind the believers in Crete and us, of how they came to be saved and stand accepted 
in God's sight. It's not based upon anything we have done or they have done, but purely on the mercy of God that we lean. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And the Bible, after all, is a book full of reminders of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future for his glory and for the benefit of his people. So it's all about reminders. We also note in verse 5 here of our text, the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit and his part in regenerating and renewing us. The Greek word here for regeneration is a long one. It's uh, palingen sea, which literally means again born or new birth. Interestingly, this, this term regeneration, as it says here in our text, is applied to individuals, as it, as it is applied to individuals, occurs only in this passage. That particular word is only used in this passage. The principle, of course, occurs in many passages like John 3.3, 3, uh, 1 Peter 1.23, and 1 John 3.9, that principle of regeneration. But the actual word, this is the only time it appears in the Bible. Louis Burkhoff gives this excellent definition of regeneration. He says, regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man, the governing disposition of the soul is made holy, and the first holy exercise of this new disposition is secured. If you recall the passage we read up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, we didn't finish all of verse 11. Let me finish up the verse. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me read that again. That's a, a powerful verse. But you were washed, and some, some were, and were such some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As one commentator put it, he is called the Holy Spirit, not only because, like the Father and the Son, he is holy, but because his ministry is to sanctify and make us holy vessels unto the Lord. Psalm 51.10, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. May we both honor him and know the blessed sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Now we see in verse 6 here that God's not stingy in dispensing his spirit upon us to regenerate and sanctify us. He has shed, literally here in the, in the Greek, he's poured forth or figuratively to gushed out or spilled over his spirit on us abundantly. What a plethora of blessings God has given to us as his people. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with a few spiritual blessings. No, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As we see in that verse in Ephesians, we see it here in Titus 3.6, that all of these blessings are given to us through Christ, our Redeemer, Savior, Elder Brother, and Joint Heir. Truly, my friends, if we were more aware and thoughtful of all that God has done for us in Christ, we would be driven to our knees in thanksgiving for him every day when we think of where we stand before God because of Christ. Lastly, in this section, we seek the results of his, we see the results of his great mercy and the pouring out of his spirit upon us. Justification we're given and the hope of eternal life. Do you see the beauty of Paul's logic here in these verses? In verse 3, he describes our former state, lost in sin. Verses 4 through 6, he declares the means of our salvation. In other words, the mercy of God, the effective working of the spirit, the saving work of Christ. And then in verse 7, we have the declaration of our inheritance 
that is the hope of eternal life. So even now in this life, though compassed about by trials and difficulties that we have, we can look forward to that full possession of what we now only see by faith. Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, a promise that cannot be nullified. In fact, if you have been paying close attention over these last few weeks, you'll see that Paul has managed in what we would call chapters to mention his theme of the hope of eternal life in each of them. If you look back at Titus chapter 1, verse 2, he speaks of it initially. Then Titus 2 and verse 13, and here again in Titus chapter 3 and verse 7, we have that hope of eternal life. As a faithful teacher, Paul is not afraid to remind us many times of the blessed promise of God that we have here in Christ. The hope of eternal life is the presence of the triune, in the presence of the triune God is what we long for. Lastly, let's go to another reminder in the latter part here of this particular chapter, and that is a reminder is a faithful saying. Faithful saying, maintain good works. A faithful saying. So after reminding us to be subject to those whom God has put over us as a testimony to them, and after reminding us of whence we came and what God has done for us, Paul brings out another faithful saying. Uh, tells us our duty, I guess you might say. Let's read verse 8 in our text. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. It's one of five uh, faithful sayings, by the way, that Paul uses here in the scriptures, primarily in, in Titus and Timothy, five faithful sayings. This one speaks to the fruit of our salvation, which is our good works, that testify of the grace of God working in us. Paul is most emphatic here that he wants Titus to be sure that he constantly reminds the people of Crete of this principle. And remember, this, unfortunately, this society, this Greek Cretan society, uh, was known for their lies and dissimulation, their ungodly lifestyle. So he's wanting to make sure he tells these elders to, you know, guard your people, point out to them they need to maintain good works, they need to live a life that pleases God and honors God and not fall back into that lifestyle that they had before. In fact, it's interesting because the Greek word he uses here is a real doozy, and it's only used here in First Timothy chapter and, and in First Timothy chapter one and verse seven. It's got like thirteen or fourteen letters, and I'll try to butcher or not to butcher it here as I pronounce it. It's called diab eb ahi am ahi, and it means to confirm thoroughly. In other words, make people sure they follow it. That's what he's saying. Make sure they follow this admonition. Remember, uh, in Titus 2.14, Christ has redeemed us to be his peculiar people, zealous for good works. He urges us in this verse to be careful to maintain good works. So first of all, we're supposed to be zealous. And that's not out of control, you know, doing crazy things. We're to be zealous, have energy doing it, and do it consistently. But we're also to do it carefully, to be careful, make sure they are good works, not just things we think are great, but they're not, Okay. In the original, the meaning is that of exercising thought in what we do. Be careful. Think about what you're doing. We're not talking here of random acts of kindness, okay? That's not what he's talking about. But thoughtful, productive deeds that edify others and glorify God. That's the goal. We do productive things. We edify other people. That's our hope. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's our goal, right? We want people to see the good works, not just see us, but see God working in us, that we, they may glorify our Father which is in heaven. In verses 9 through 11, Paul returns to another duty he has given Timothy and Titus and all elders, that of avoiding and rebuking those uh, who teach error. Let's read verses 9 through 11 as we come down to the end here. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Once again, in verse 9, we see him specifically warning against the false teachings of the Jews, who like to mix fact with fancy and waste much time in vain activities. He's saying, be careful of these things. In fact, you can look at more admonitions or more warnings along that line in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verses 3 through 7. We won't go there now. Uh, but also looking back at Titus 1.14, if you look back at the first chapter, Titus 1.14, he uses similar words. He says, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. That's what we want to avoid from those fables that are being taught that are not the truth. If in the early, and think about it. If in the early church, soon after the resurrection of Christ, with his apostles around teaching sound doctrine, they had to deal with the constant threat of error, how much more do we have to deal with it today, beloved? You think about that. You think things would have been perfect back then. You know, Christ had just been risen from the dead. The apostles are all around teaching. You think there wouldn't be any problems. But in the church, he's talking to people in the church. He's telling Titus to teach the people in the churches in Crete to be careful, to watch their, their actions, be careful with their words, to maintain good works. So we have to be on guard ourselves. Satan, the great deceiver, will not stop sowing his tares among the wheat until he's thrown into the lake of fire. He's going to keep going. And we must be on guard and be grounded in the word of truth, lest we fall into the strivings about the law that are unprofitable and useless. In verses 10 and 11, Paul gives specific instructions here regarding those individuals who divide the church. The Greek word here from where we get our word heretic originally meant nothing more than to have an opinion on a subject, just to have an opinion. That was the original use of the word heretic. Over time, it came to be used to describe someone who was factious or one who was a follower of a false doctrine. Okay, that's how, how you think of it now. Paul, using the guidelines of Matthew 18, tells Titus that he is, he is to reject such a one after giving him a, notice, a first and a second admonition. The Greek word here is not a harsh one, but rather means calling attention to or even a mild rebuke or warning to him. Okay, we're not beating the person up. The goal is to restore such a person, not drive them away. So you give them two admonitions, trying to encourage them to do what's right. Yet, if they refuse to heed the writings or the warnings, they are to be rejected, or literally, they're to be shunned and avoided. And again, the hope is that this shunning will shame them back into repentance, not just to get rid of them. And we see that in Romans chapter 6. And verse 17, in fact, let's look at one passage that speaks to that. Is that 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, which Paul is giving similar admonitions. And this is where he speaks of, of uh, shunning someone. Verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The goal is to win people back when they go astray, not to make them feel 
like they can't possibly ever be useful to God. These are not people who are ignorant of the truth, but really knowing it, these are people who have turned aside from the truth. That's what's happening here. In fact, turn lastly to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. <clears throat> and this is the really the severe warning here in uh, Hebrews against those who are strayed from the truth. Verse 26 of chapter 10, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Pray that no one we know falls into that state, beloved, who have heard the truth, who have knowledge of the truth, but turn away from it because there's no, there's no other sacrifice for sins. Nothing else can save them. There's just a fearful expectation of judgment upon them if they reject the only means of salvation. Well, let's conclude now with this final reminder as Paul gives it here. Um, he gives his final instructions to Titus, who is his true son in the faith, verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. There he is again, reminding that theme. To meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Because Paul highly values Titus' companionship and assistance in the ministry, he promised to send a replacement, either Artemis or Tychicus. We don't know exactly what happened there or who they are specifically. But he desires Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, which is actually a city in Macedonia. It's actually kind of a winter resort area in that place. It's also known as what's called a victory city, for it was established by Augustus after his victory over Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. So it's a a special place, you might say, where people go for to get away, like a resort. We would think of a resort today. Most scholars believe that this letter was being delivered by Zenos and Apollos to Titus. Thus, Paul asked that they be helped on their journey. He may have been sending them on their way to another assignment to minister in another place and therefore asked them to bring this epistle to Titus on their way there because he was going to send Artemis or Tychicus to replace Titus there. Okay, but the other two, Zenos and Apollos, were just kind of traveling through. So it's likely that Paul gave them the letter to take to Titus. In any case, Paul has one reminder, one more reminder here in verse 14 to Titus, as I mentioned. It's almost as if he wants to make sure that Zenos and Apollos are helped, not only by Titus, but the believers in Crete in general, and that they are not neglectful of their responsibilities to maintain good works. He's come full circle here in the chapter having started out with an admonition to be ready for every good work in verse 1, and then he finishes with one as well here, maintain good works. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35 says this, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the admonition to us, beloved, is let us not be found lacking in good works, especially if we have the opportunity to help those who serve God in the ministry of the word as missionaries, as evangelists, as pastors. Above all, as God's servants, let us not be unfruitful. For as Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples.
Very much fruit comes from maintaining good works. So as we look forward <clears throat> in the coming days to our traditional holiday gatherings with family and loved ones, let us truly be thankful for all that we have in Christ, especially, as Paul has pointed out in this epistle, our blessed hope in him. And as we partake of the fruits of our harvests and our, our life's work and enjoy the abundance of the earth, let us also bring forth fruit to the glory of God, as we're told in Colossians 1.10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May the Lord find us faithful, zealous for good works, for his glory, and for the benefit of his people, the church. And finally, as we conclude this particular chapter in the Bible, as Paul concludes this letter, I would conclude today with grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat>